A very warm welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 28th Decolonial Learning Session of Adeles. We are a pan-decolonial network and organization based in Amsterdam. My name is Max de Ploeg. I'm one of the co-founders of Adeles. And today we're going to go into conversation with Nadira Omarje to talk about her new book, We Belong to the Earth, Towards a Decolonial Feminist Pedagogy Rooted in Uhuru and Ubuntu. And we are honored to have her as a guest today from South Africa, but she's half with one feet in South Africa, with one feet in the Netherlands. She travels back and forth. Um, so we're also going to discuss around that, uh, but mostly, of course, her book. Um, the decolonial learning sessions are a monthly session online via Zoom. We always record it. They are uh, afterwards posted uh, either in Dutch or English. Today's in English uh, on our YouTube channel and Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook as well on or our newsletter via our website, stichtingadeles.com. Um, the monthly sessions are done on donation basis. So if you like, you can contribute afterwards uh, and leave a donation. Uh, with these donations, we are able to also support the speakers that we're inviting um, and the platform itself. And um, yeah, for today's session, we're going to focus on the new book and some of the key concepts around healing, decolonizing ourselves, our communities, activism, the classroom, um, you name it. Um, but also we'll make some time uh, and space free to talk about uh, the importance of solidarity with Palestine. And of course, uh, as a South African, I think... Um, that is strongly felt that we should be in solidarity with what's happening there now. Um, so we're going to make room for conversation there as well. So in the first half of the program, I'll be interviewing Nadira. We'll have a conversation. And for the second half, I'll also make it room for you to be able to, to ask questions. If you like, you can gather your questions in between in the chat, but it's also free for you after the first part of the key, uh, interview with Nadira to um, yeah, unmute yourself and ask the questions, just so you know, if you just came in now, um, you are being recorded. So if you'd like to be anonymous, you can make use of the chat instead as well. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Nadira. So Nadira is a decolonial feminist scholar working internationally. She was previously a senior researcher at the Nordic Africa Institute on the Africa, Africa Scholar Program at Uppsala University in Sweden. She's currently a research associate with identity, diversity, and inclusion at the sociology department at the Vrije Universiteit of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And her pre previous book dealt with the question on decolonizing academia by following the decolonial student movements in Cape Town and Amsterdam. Um, and uh, she's, is, her current research interests focus on decolonial feminist pedagogies uh, with her latest book, We Belong to the Earth. Um, and that deals specifically with the ways in which um, consensations can lead towards justice and healing in attempts to connect the classroom to the community by inserting lived experience against epistemicides and showing how the personal is political as well. And um, I can really recommend you reading her book as well, because she does practice what she preached in the sense that she does put her own personal life in the book as well as an example how coloniality works in everyday life um yeah welcome nadira and thank you for being here spending the time with us and for writing this book i think i have it here um maybe nadira um 
after this introduction, can you first share with us why you start writing um, this book and how that process was for you? Okay, so I started writing this book because I had written a book on roads must fall on the University of Color because I followed them. And the big question was, how do we decolonize the curriculum? So following the student movements in 2015, one of the pressing questions outside of, you know, fee barriers in South Africa were actually, how do we decolonize the curriculum, which was actually the same uh, burning question in Amsterdam as well. The curriculum is colonial, the academy is colonial and neoliberal. It's corporatized. How do we push back so that education becomes a public good, but actually leads to systemic change? Um, and as a result of that, I, I kept, you know, thinking about these questions, thinking about them uh, in the classrooms in in the classrooms in Cape Town, uh, in particular, with the work that I was doing after Roads Must Fall in terms of teaching on decolon decolonial feminism and development studies and media studies. I did a range of uh, classes in different disciplines um, uh, in gender studies as well. I, at every, in every single class that I held, um, a student came up to me, actually not just one, um, to tell me about their experience of violence. And this, they were all uh, female, um, so they were all women, queer, non-binary, uh, all kinds of women that came up to me and told me about stories of their own abuse. And I started thinking about this and I started thinking about, well, I'm sitting here and I'm trying to decolonize the curriculum and I'm trying to think how we can decolonize the curriculum, but there's something else that's also happening simultaneously. There's a level of trauma that exists in the classroom and this trauma exists in the community because the classroom is not separate to the community. And so how do we connect the classroom to the community in terms of empowering people in the classroom as well because in order to write you have to find a way of talking about your trauma as well um, because this was the other thing that that was important to me was I had um, these were classrooms in South Africa so this is post-apartheid South Africa that I'm talking about which means that there's a level of um, racialization that's also operating classism um, many black um, or the majority of black people in South Africa and post-apartheid South Africa live below the poverty line uh, and that's why the student movement wanted fees to be scrapped so there's all these these burdens placed and on black women in particular there's even more burden there's the double burden that you know Anton de Com talks about in terms of slavery as well Black women carried a double burden, even in slavery. Um, so, so there's all of these things that are that are there that are present in the classroom, and I'm sitting in this classroom, and I and I think, okay, how do we make this? How do we? How do I actually really reach everyone in the classroom, and how do we actually make learning a public good, but also something that is owned by everyone that's participating in the classroom? And so then I started thinking about how can healing be part of a pedagogical praxis? And so this was where the, the book really, really comes from. And it meant that I had to also do my own healing and reflect on my own life 
And, and as a result, I decided to write it um, autoethnographical, autobiographical, because I felt that I, as a black woman, have always had the colonial gaze on me as well. And I've always, people have written about black women. Um, black women have been kept out of the academy for a very long time. And so I wanted to kind of reinsert, well, not reinsert, actually insert um, myself into the academy, but I also show how other black women are also inserting themselves into a canon that had deliberately excluded themselves. Artists like Sitimbilem, Susanna, um, and others who have actually put their bodies on the line to insert themselves into a canon that had actually deliberately erased us. So, um, so I decided to use my own life experiences and write about it from that process of my own journey and what it meant for me and how a pedagogical praxis on healing develops through that journey. So it's, it's quite personal. And I make the link between the personal is political that what happens in our everyday intimate spaces are also reflective of what's happening in society at large. And I develop an, a, the a theorization of that core that I call the narcissism of coloniality that un makes us understand the ways in which narcissism is a traumatic um, experience, that, um, that narcissists have traumas, but that trauma also pushes them to, to manage and control their environments because of the because of their own traumas around control and loss of control or feeling um, vulnerable in certain spaces and how that works. And so there's a level of compassion consciousness around the book. And I, I, I read today that, you know, scholars, you know, want to be seen as nuanced. They want to be seen as balanced, but sometimes you can't. You can't be nuanced, you can't be balanced because the situation doesn't call for that. And I'm making the link now to Palestine where many scholars have not spoken out because they want to seem to be balanced and you can't. There's The system is based on injustice. And so we have to find the lingua franca to speak to that injustice. And the book is very much about finding that lingua franca to, to speak to injustice and developing the narcissism of coloniality or theorizing a theorization of a narcissism of coloniality is about putting, uh, giving a lingua franca to some of the traumas that we experience in our everyday that links the personal to the political. Are you muted, Max? Uh Thank you for uh, reminding me that I'm muted. Um, maybe before we unpack more what you mean in the book by narcissism of coloniality, I want to um, uh, backtrack a little bit on something that you said on the reason or the purpose for the book was to look at the new pedagogy because you noticed a lot of trauma in the classroom. And let's say new people are entering the university spaces, which was predominantly meant for white men to occupy these spaces. Now new experiences enter these spaces, the personal political right. They come in with experiences that are a symptom of something bigger that's happening. So how do you then make that space? Um, because we know from social movements, a lot of people make a safe space, let's say. You retract from that dominant space so you can conversate amongst each other, share experience, develop language. But how then do you, um, I don't know how the South African classroom looks like, but I know in the Dutch classroom, uh, classroom, 
you might be one hour two out of the full classroom that is a person of color or someone that is not from the dominant group so you're going to have a minority experience within that space so how do you develop a space to bring in that personal is the political without making it too vulnerable or you know too much spotlight like how do you what are things that you've noticed developed that are meaningful ways to engage that classroom so how do we keep the space safe um yeah well maybe it's never fully, maybe it's not fully safe because a safe space what i say usually you retract out of that dominant space but you have that space anyhow people come in with their different layers how do you um, sometimes people call it the brave space, but how do you make it a space of learning, let's say, where people can come in with these different experiences? So, so having taught, having a te teaching in, in Amsterdam, teaching in Cape Town, teaching in different uh, parts of the world means that you, you have to navigate different uh, contexts. Um, and geopolitics of different contexts as well. So teaching in Amsterdam is very different to teaching in Cape Town. Teaching in Cape, Cape Town is very different to Amsterdam. So the, the, the cities, the, the history, the geopolitics of the place is very different. One was a former empire, the other is a former colony. So um, there are very different historical trajectories and they, they actually influence the kinds of, the ways in which people talk about trauma and um, in, in different contexts. Uh, in, in Amsterdam, it's talked about in a very, it's a very interesting way in which it's talked about. So I was giving a lecture, um, I think in 2016, um, I'm really now going back into memory. Um, and I was asked to speak specifically about the work that I was, uh, the research I was doing at the time on um, Rhodes Must Fall and um, the University of Color, of which you belong to, Max. So I, I come to talk about it, I come to share my experiences following the student movements, talking to students from the Rotomus Hall um, at the time, and, I'm, and I say, you know, the occupation of Machtenhaus and Azania House uh, and what, what led to them and stuff. And one of the students, a white woman, was very upset and said that she felt very much vulnerable in the Machtenhaus. Uh, at that occupation and she thought that the students were being very unruly and uh, they were the occupation itself didn't allow to, the space to actually talk about why the occupation is considered bad or what you know there wasn't a space for her to actually object in uh, with the occupation and and she felt that that was quite um, that was also not okay and um, and she felt like when she tried to bring that conversation uh, up at the Machtenhaus, that there was a lot of aggression towards her. And, and that made her feel unsafe. And she was very, very upset about it. And at the time, okay, I, and I'm going to admit this, at the time I was very upset to hear this because I was, I was like, wow, privilege really works very interestingly. Um, uh, and I think I had an emotional reaction because I think that um, following Roads Must Fall in particular had triggered a lot of repressed trauma in me. And that's because I went to the University of Cape Town as a student in 1991 and I had gotten through university there and the, the change in South Africa as well, because when I was there on the, my first year in 1991, there was a referendum for whites in 
South Africa to decide whether they wanted apartheid to be abolished to end, the end of apartheid. And I, the, the kind of like arrogance that, you know, whiteness in apartheid had and the levels of privilege and the kinds of white tears that emerge. And I think that today I'm a lot more, um, I'm a lot more relaxed about these things because I understand why tears, it doesn't upset me anymore. It's like, ah, there's the performance, it's coming, you know, white fragility, white tears. It's 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 part of the performance. And and you move on and you get on with life and you get on with whatever you have to do. So so at that time I was slightly agitated and I said, you know, but how do you expect social change to happen if you're you're also perpetuating the system? And that upset her even more. And I was then told by one of the uh, the Dutch scholar that had invited me to tea, you know, to come and give this lecture, that that was not very kind of me. And it was a white man. And I realized that as black women, we're always told what's kind and what's not kind and what we should do and how we should fit into the system. Um, and so that's like the everyday traumas of not, of having your voice erased um, and so I, I, I mean, right. now, like, now I say I, I don't, I'm not affected by it as much, but I mean, and now I'm aware that this is just part of how it's going to, how the game is played. But then I, I was clearly visibly quite traumatized by it. You wanted to ask a question. No, it's also interesting that in these settings, they always say that um, people of color are the ones emotional or not objective. But in the thing that you describe, something is playing out. The white person is emotional. Um, you know, then ask that question about unsafety, which is an emotion. And then you respond with an, let's say, question. Okay, how do you think the change should happen? So you just apply like, okay, how do you see your theory of change happening? And then getting more upset. But it's just funny that. And then you're being unpolite, but in the other way around, they always accuse, right? So it's the wider scene is neutral and objective, but they don't see that oftentimes when it comes to these subjects, they are the one reacting really emotional in that sense, and then centering themselves again um, while it while what is happening is they're confronted maybe for the first time with their blind spots, privileges, and stuff. So I just wanted to mark that out there. And then, um, so there's also another power play because you have been invited and many scholars of color are sometimes on temporary contracts. So you might feel, how you say, obliged to do something with that feedback, right? Even though if you think um, it is not just what are some of the um, tools or survival strategies that you've had to apply or found in your healing process or occupying that space that maybe others who are listening can recognize or level with or think like okay that maybe that one I can use to survive this place that's a great question thank you Matt for asking it because now it actually allows me to show you the kinds of the ways in which the theorization around the narcissism of coloniality developed so just that example which then puts the black woman scholar or the black scholar in a position of vulnerability because we know that in holland black scholars are not given uh entry into the academy as easily as white scholars are they have to work doubly hard to get into the academy 
And so, so when you get feedback like that, um, you immediately sit there and you think, okay, I'm, I'm in a vulnerable position. I'm a black scholar here, blah, blah, blah. How do I, how do I take this feedback on and also still give space to my own trauma that is being triggered here? Because I'm, I'm literally being devalued by actually throwing a question back. How do you expect change to happen then? Uh, and, and it's a legitimate question. It's, it's just that I, as a black woman, I'm not allowed to ask that question because I am supposed to be excellent when it comes to emotion, other people's emotions and caring for them. Um, so my own emotions can be devalued so that other people's emotions can be valued in that moment. So it's still, if you understand what Anton de Combe said around, you know, very Slavonev and of Suriname, in that particular book, how the double burden of being a black woman is uh, operating in in a very clone, colonial neoliberal academy. Uh, you're constantly being devalued. Your your personal being, your personal your your being is being devalued because you're always being racialized. You're always being sexualized. Uh, you're always othered in that way, so that you have to always be concerned about the emotional well-being of everybody else but yourself. Now, the narcissism of coloniality is, the theorization of it is based on narcissism um, and narcissism in the sense that it's narcissism in children is uh, stunted ego development. And that is because children are traumatized themselves, have not, uh, uh, oh, what book did I mention? Um, it, is, um, it is Anton de Com, and it's in Dutch, Veslavanev and Suriname, thank you. Um, so, so that, so that basically, the theorization is about the ways in which narcissism is seen as a a traumatic experience because of the ways in which children who have who have been very, very much controlled, so that they only they have emotional repression in themselves, uh, kind of grow up with that kind of ego, stunted ego development because of emotional repression, then want to repress other people's emotions because it is easier. Sorry, I, every time the chat comes up, I, I keep looking and wanting to answer the question on the chat. So if you can, you can hold it. We come back to it. It's my turn. Yeah, if you can actually just make notes of the questions you want to ask and then ask me because I'm here, I'm happy to answer. Just do that and then I'll answer because when I'm, when I'm actually thinking through, it's hard to read the question and then also think at the same time. <laughs> I'm not that smart. <laughs> I can't do both of them well. Um, but but what I what I what this means is that that kind of emotional repression in childhood actually makes those children want to control the emotional space, okay, of others because they are so vulnerable in an in emotional spaces themselves, and that that control and management of other people, other people's emotions is part of the narcissism of coloniality, but what it does to the person that's being devalued in that moment is very traumatic because they're being denied, they're being, which is emotional, bodily, everything, intellectual being, whatever they're feeling is being denied, it's being devalued, causes a lot of trauma. And I have experienced this trauma. Um, and so I wanted to find a way to theorize my own trauma through this kind of understanding of what narcissism of coloniality is because how it works in the personal space and how it works in the public space. And this example of how I was told 
um, you know, asking the question back, how do you expect, how, how do you see change happening then is, is a very, very um, good example of me being told that I should devalue my own voice. And in devaluing my own voice, I have to internalize my, my oppression because my voice is not valid. And so that's part of the kinds of narcissism of coloniality that is theorized in the, in the book. But it's also about understanding that if you're going to hold a classroom in a space like South Africa or in the Netherlands, um, where blackness is still such a racialized othered identity that you have to actually give people the space to actually voice their traumas without the white tears so that we're not going back into the narcissism of coloniality. Was, did that yeah, make any sense? That makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense because also, I guess if narcissism self-centers, also the asking the question or the assumption that it's like rude to, let's say, occupy space, let's say the empathetic way of listening or asking question is, could have been, okay, how bad is the situation that people want to stop there every day and go about an occupation, right? What has been the situation, what has been so urgent that people feel the urge to do this instead of asking, you know, like assuming there's a misbehavior going on, right? That is the, I, I guess the other, the other end of it. Um, and maybe uh, because we've taken this example, I made a bridge to, the narcissism or the yeah not seeing the devaluation of the emotion centering one person's emotion for your own healing journey in the book there's two concepts that are very important that are sort of quite big on the you know on the cover which is uhuru and ubuntu can you um maybe elaborate what these two concepts mean to you and how they were part of your personal healing you know process uh the personal and also to the political yeah. Can you explain the origins of these terms and how they've been part of your process? So when I when I was doing the research on Roads Must Fall and I was writing about Roads Must Fall, I was sending a lot of my work out to Roads Must Fall to because I had a, a gentle reflexive methodology that I was using, which meant that the, the, the theorization that was coming out of the book was a shared theorization. They were actually monitoring what I was writing about them. Um, so that it became a very collaborative process. Even though my name is on that book, that, that process was very collaborative. But of course, a lot of the, the ideas were, was uh, learning through sharing experience, which is very Frarian. Um, and in that process, you know, because I, 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 have to, I have to give credit to Rhodes Must Fall. This is where I spend most of my time, not at the University of Color, unfortunately, but really with Rhodes Must Fall, was that I got a lot of my own up a uh, political education updated. So um, growing up in the 70s and 80s in South Africa, my political education came from a previous generation or two previous generations. It was now being updated by a generation that was ahead of me. Um, so I was actually behind them and I was, or at least two generations behind them and I was learning from them. And it was amazing because we they, because they specifically invited me to have these intergenerational conversations with them. So that's how the book actually developed. But in that book, I theorize decolonization of self because I'm listening to all of this that they're saying about decolonization. 
and I and we get into these conversations about self-reflexivity and I bring in a lot of feminist theory that I you know I am embedded in and uh and so we talk about these things and I say well you know I think it's very important to decolonize yourself and I developed this whole theoretical frame using Gugi Wationgo's work on decolonizing the mind and why this moment of self-reflexivity is so important is because decolonizing the self is about learning to undo internalized oppression. So this is the whole kind of political education that is being, you know, developed, uh, being through conversation is emerging. And so the theorization comes with decolonizing the self. And then, you know, I, I realize that actually language is such an important part of the kinds of erasures that happen, the colonial erasures, that we lose our imaginaries when we lose our languages. So I wanted to go back and reclaim language. And part of reclaiming language was I wanted to reclaim African languages and, lang and the language of my ancestors as well. And so I use terms like Uhuru because Uhuru actually is decolonizing the self. It is freedom of being and that freedom of being is about learning to undo internalized oppression and why is it important is because Uhuru and Ubuntu and these radical African communitarian philosophies predate colonialism and, and it Uhuru becomes liberation right in the literal translation for yeah, like liberation so, so these are um they they come they come out of ban, Bantu language and uh, you know the 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 generic Bantu language uh, foundation um, or rather uh, the the language um, system Bantu language system and Uhuru literally means freedom of being and this freedom of being is uh, you know uh, in in colonialism it is about finding your being again by undoing internalized oppression, because we are yeah. not post-colonial. I mean, the decolonial turn, as much as it wants to talk about the, the new world, uh, you know, a new world, we aren't there yet. We're in the interregnum. So decolonization itself is an interregnum. Um, and, and so we have to we have to find our ways through through actually this kind of collective healing to, to be able to really push back against the kinds of you know the multiple forms of oppression that we 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 face in our everyday lives yeah and what's the concept of ubuntu you focused a bit more on uhuru and after you answer what what ubuntu means um also how did you then apply these two concepts to your own healing process because i know the journey is uh, you know also sort of an autobiography so you can choose one of them where you've applied it and how how that made a change for you Okay, so so Ubuntu literally means um, it's uh, Ubuntu means I am, I am I because you are you. So this is again the importance of language that a word like Ubuntu has an entire life world that it inhabits because it is about recognition. I come into existence through recognition with you. I see you, and as a result, I realize I am me. And this importance of recognition, of seeing yourself in the other, knowing that you're sharing 
an experience together that you are in this moment together is so so valid and so put the potentiality of that moment is so important for healing in as a praxis ubuntu as uh, a healing praxis is so important because it is about the recognition of the other and through the recognition of the other the recognition of self and the self becomes validated in that moment and that validation is about your own recognition that i am here I, this is predating Descartes and all of that theoretical of philosophical positionings. It is about the understanding that I'm here and I'm inhabiting this moment with you and that we are inhabiting this together. The potential of that means that it can disrupt the kinds of systems of domination that exist because recognition allows us to connect with the other. But for the real connection to happen, you have to do the work of undoing internalized oppression so that the healing practices can actually really take full hold. And so for that, you can talk about some of the traumas that exist. You can talk about the discomfort, uh, the moments of feeling vulnerable because it leads towards a greater connection with the other because you can really see yourself in the other and the other can see themselves in you and that's the potential for healing that level of interconnectedness is actually what we really need to go back to and i mean i was thinking about the palestinian marches and the sit-ins and the teach outs because there wasn't a teaching um as we know on you know last friday so these things are so important for actually our ability to connect with each other, to create solidarity and to push back against multiple forms of oppression. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is an important concept that is now not happening to the Palestinians, right? I mean, um, where you say this dynamic, you recognize yourself in the other because you've, you know, you see each other from who you are in that interconnectedness but somehow society views let's say if a palestinian protests or within the dutch context or others in solidarity with the palestinians right you're criminalized or said you know for instance from the river to the sea palestine will be free it's now framed by the second house of chambers in the netherlands as a as a call to violence so that so that means they're not seeing the other as someone who wants to be free as well they are seeing a terrorist group or framed you know as a people as a as a as a terrorist group so in that unrecognition or that you know that 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 frame of orientalism and racism towards the palestinian people that dehumanization makes it so that they cannot see that we are in this together right that 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 it's a call for freedom and not a call for violence which is their perception of what they're hearing but they're not saying it but that's what they're hearing even so they're not even uh listening and 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 i i think there uh the netherlands has to do a lot of unlearning of internalized racism um if you cannot see after 75 years of occupation ethnic cleansing and so forth that people want freedom that that's not a call to violence of any sort um but how can you maybe if if you come back because it is an important part uh, because these are sort of big political topics but at the same time the person is connected to that big political topic um could you share an example where um because i know in the book you also 
um you were at some point also quite in a dark place you had a lot of healing to do you weren't sure if you were gonna get out of that dark place how did that feeling of getting connected again and the part of being disconnected how did it yeah involve your healing process to get back to life basically i know i've kept it vague because it's up to you how you want to tell it but it is part of your book so okay so there are two questions uh, from what i heard and let me see if i if i interpreted these questions correctly the one question is around the slogan from the river to the sea palestine will be free uh how it how it speaks to israeli fears of extinction uh of genocide yeah. um yeah, that's their projection on the on the term yeah and how that kind of the narcissism of coloniality in that particular context makes them blind to their own genocide of the Palestinians um, because of their fear of actually being subjected to genocide. So do you understand now how the narcissist is also so fear-based of losing control in that moment that you have to assert that control over the other? Because the narcissism of coloniality is not a new concept. It is re, I'm just re-theorizing the master-slave dialectic. That's all it is. I'm kind of creating a lingua franca around the master-slave dialectic today because we're talking about recognition. We're talking about freedom of being, all of this. So the, these are not new concepts. They've never been new concepts. But the ways in which the, uh, the theorization works is to understand through a compassion consciousness that there is a trauma also for the narcissist as much as it is a trauma for the victim in that moment. Um, and that actually the one way we can see this going forward is to actually connect with each other, to create recognition processes and to be able to move out of fear towards love. And, and I know that, you know, people in the academy do not speak about love because love is that thing that is like far too feminine and, you know, the neoliberal colonial academy is a masculinized, you know, white space. So love has no space in the academy. But of course, Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks write about love. You know, black feminists have written about love forever. And they're, you know, my icons to this day. I, I, I get so much inspiration reading Audre Lorde. So I think that love is the other way to like break away from the kinds of fear that, you know, encapsulates the narcissism of coloniality. Everybody is in that situation is traumatized. And this is what Fanon wrote. Fanon, the book also hangs on a particular uh, paragraph in The Wretched of the Earth around how the colonial mother has to discipline the native child and also stave off suicide ideation because the native child is subjected to the colonial authority and the colonial mother is subjected to the colonial authority as well, which is a kind of a, uh, uh um is a uh is a uh why am i losing the the word I, there's too many languages in my head but it, it it's a way of actually also sh showing what white feminism goes through because white feminism is always about patriarchy and the subjection to the colonial authority which is patriarchal and then you get into maria lojones's work on the coloniality of gender but but fanon's work in that 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 paragraph is about suicide ideation that the colonial condition produces unhappiness 
and the native child that is subjected to the colonial authority and has to be it has to be disciplined into the colonial condition is an unhappiness that is produced in the native child but it's also produced within coloniality it produces unhappiness for everyone because of the ways in which the freedom of being is actually restricted in that moment for everyone actually you all we all lose our uhuru together when we're losing it and so suicide ideation is something that is very very real for um, for the native child and in post-apartheid South Africa in universities and in and mainly in white former white institutions like the University of Cape Town and um, you know other universities other institutions there is a high suicide rate amongst black scholars and this is again the kinds of unhappiness that is produced through the colonial condition and so to survive this condition, I mean, you have to you have to embrace your unhappiness in some ways. Um, and so I know the one question you want to ask is about joy. <laughs> so when you understand that, you know, living in the unhappiness is part of the colonial condition, the resistance to that is joy. It is jouissance. That's why I make these connections to jouissance, because for the black person to push back against that unhappiness is through joy. It's a form of resistance to the colonial condition. But, but suicide ideation is a big part of the native child trying to overcome this unhappiness that is that that is all around is, you know, is is all around you, is in the everyday. It's the ways in which you have to navigate the everyday and that unhappiness. And that's why Black Jouissance is so important for Blacks to be able to come together in community, celebrate and be able to push back. But that's why marches, sit-ins, that solidarity is also part producing connection to others that are in vulnerable positions, but it's also the joy of connecting with each other, knowing that we are there still. So as the Gazans say, you know, uh, we, are, we are seeds. Um, you cannot kill us because we will just grow. We'll continue to grow. That resistance is produced through joy as well. It's produced to the through connection with all the Gazans at this point in time. And it's our support towards the Gazans in this moment as well that also holds that joy in their hearts, is knowing that they're not alone, that their, their genocide is not going unwatched and unnoticed and un and it's not unfelt yeah no and i liked in this part that you also said it's a two-way street right so one person let's say gets dehumanized and oppressed but the other part of the play is that someone has to do the oppressing and how that dehumanizing so both parties lose right and one loses the joy as well and i i mean when i was you know visiting the the west bank also once you know a lot of people are really sweet and just want to share space culture food you know that's what an average human wants to do and the palestinians and jewish people prior to the whole occupation and the zionist project they were actually living as neighbors next to each other and people still had memories of that living together but now if you look at the israeli society and uh you know many uh, traumas that also Israeli have of constantly having to fear, let's say, the, the natives, the Palestinians, for, you know, fear of reprisal because of the occupation of land as being an occupier, 
having to serve the military, having to maintain apartheid. You have so many of the youth, you know, having to do the military service, getting traumatized by having, being obliged to be in that role of traumatizing others. And some step out of the military, of course, some internalized in a different way. It's not, it's not generalized. Not everyone can actually make that empathy, but for those who make that empathy actually as an occupier also become traumatized in that perpetuation of violence and you know you have, you have these people coming out of as well you know changing their minds saying okay um i had to serve the military and this is what i've done and mm. I, I i never want to go back i mean i've also spoken to many israeli and dutch society that left israel because they were like i don't want to be an occupier anymore you know i'd love to share one state everyone free and equal but i i'm not going to be part of it anymore and i think that um yeah, that's an important part that you shared, like everyone loses. And I think in that context, that goes very well as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, th and then that's, again, the personal and the political, huh? the connection between the personal and the political, because in that in in the personal, when when you don't see the other, it's very traumatic and it's traumatic for both people because the other person, well, the other person is not seeing. So it's less traumatic, perhaps, maybe for them, but when you're missing each other, um, it can be very traumatic. But but when when you are othering, um, which is the opposite of Ubuntu, the opposite of recognition, when you're othering, um, you become dehumanized in the process of othering as well. So yeah, I mean the the refusal to actually be part of um, you know a col uh, an occupier is is very powerful and in south africa in fact you know i think that uh, the the south african in the conscription campaign uh in south africa because all white uh young men had to be enlisted in the south african defense force uh i think many prominent uh members of in the conscription campaign were actually south african jews um and there is an and in the conscription campaign in israel as well so there are people refusing to actually join the military as well. So, and that's that's very reassuring that they have to do uh, jail time for it. Yeah. Sorry. And they have to do jail time for it if they do so, and but they exist. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so we can see like parallels from South African apartheid and what's happening in Israeli society, also opposing. The occupation as well which is very i mean it, it's it's encouraging but we need to see a lot more of that um happening as well yeah, yeah maybe you can also speak about because i know i mean there needs to be resistance inside the society but i think what broke the uh the back of south african apartheid regime was also it has been heavily supported by the international community. At some point, it became isolated. And once the international community stopped supporting the apartheid regime, that also helped part of the process of it falling down, right? And I mean, you see the same with Israel. It cannot maintain its occupation without its Western allies providing all the arms, financial, political support to carry on what it's doing. Um, maybe can you say something of what your memories were of that transition from, you know, living in apartheid South Africa, then it being, let's say, in law deracialized, but then you said your classroom is full of trauma, full of 
people not being able to enter the university through fees. So uh, the majority of South African living below the poverty line, you know, if you look at unemployment rates, all these kind of things, like the legacy is not finished when you say on a piece of paper, you know what, black people are also allowed to participate equally. You're not there yet. Can you maybe talk about that? These two periods, you've seen it, the transition and the legacies of that transition and maybe what that will tell for the future of Palestine once it's freed as well, let's say. Okay. I don't know. Big, big questions, but answer as you like. <laughs> no, thank you. You always ask big questions. You and Funo like really like to, you know, throw me, throw everything at me. <laughs> um, okay, so so from again, let me clarify your your questions and see if I understood them. Um, and it seems like you don't really you don't really want that, but I want it because I'd like to make sure we're on the same page. Um, you're you're talking about the collapse of apartheid and and that the the apartheid government collapsed. You're suggesting that they collapsed because of international solidarity, and that that is true. That is yeah. that is true. But but people marching all over the world did not actually end apartheid. I mean, knowing that there was support for the end for ending apartheid, and there was a boycott and a divestment and sanctions campaign against South Africa, the and it was made a pariah state. Ordinary folk, because the British were still supporting apartheid, the U.S. was still supporting apartheid. It was ordinary folk that decided they wouldn't support South Africa and wouldn't buy South African products that actually was part of the kind of economic disruption to the apartheid state that also, you know, was was what led to these kinds of negotiations and stuff um, for democracy in South Africa. But there was in the conscription campaign, the United Democratic Front, uh, you know, labor unions, um, trade unions actually opposing apartheid, having strikes to oppose apartheid. All of that was part of this whole machine that actually led to us coming together to talk. But also it was economic power that actually was being disrupted at that point, that actually more than anything else, more than you know, ordinary citizens protesting and sending petitions and stuff. It was economic disruption to power that actually brought people to the negotiating table. And we mustn't forget that power is a big factor when we talk about these things, how power is used, who has the power, and how you can push back against that power. So, so the, our strategies need to focus on some of the strategies that worked in South Africa, which is why South Africa has a very strong uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement um, that that actually any like business that supports Zionism actually uh, is boycotted in South Africa as well. So there's there's a lot of stuff that we do in South Africa to actually um, to so, to to show our resistance to um, the Israeli occupation of Palestine um, and 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 you 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 mentioned that you know. This, this whole kind of racial capitalism, um, even though we, we negotiated a democracy in South Africa and apartheid is li literally abolished. Um, and it's 30 years almost uh, of the end of apartheid, but it's not, apartheid is not over. Post-apartheid is racial capitalism at its best. I mean, 
Marikana is a great example of racial capitalism, um, the massacre at Marikana and the fact that you know, miners in Marikana today still don't, don't earn a living wage and do not have proper housing and medical. And only now after, you know, a very long time, in fact, uh, probably, you know, the last time, I mean, I remember the conference on silicosis, which was in 2012. Um, only now people are starting to think about, you know, silicosis and reparations around silicosis, miners, uh, you know, suffering from silicosis and things like that. This is about black fungibility at its best. Racial capitalism is about black fungibility. We have a cheap lab black labor reserve that colonials exploit and, and black life ma matters very little. And so the connection between black life in the US, black life in Suriname, black life in Europe, black life in you know, Palestine, as in blacks, politically black life in, in Israel because Palestinians are racialized others for Israelis. Um, all of this black life in that way, in the racialized other way, um, you know, just perpetuates black fungibility. We become very fungible. And that's why I, the, the connection to Palestine and what's happening to Palestine is a reminder to all of us that occupy you know, black life, uh, which is the racialized other. We, we are fungible. We are very fungible. And the book also makes that fungibility very clear. Um, and to resist that fungibility is to be able to connect with each other and to create community. And that's where, you know, the, the connection between Ubuntu and Uhuru as well is to undo that internalized oppression, to, to connect with community, to be able to create uh, strong communities of resistance. Thank you for sharing. And I will ask one more final question and then uh, go to the audience. So the audience can already, uh, you know, start thinking of what they want to ask. Um, and for those who didn't know, the Marikana massacre was in 2015 or 16 or 14, but one of these three years, I believe. Um, I think where... it was 2012, actually. 2012, earlier. Okay, 2012. Yeah, the I think it was on the 15th of August, in, uh, 2012. All right, yes, 20... I think it was. Yeah. I can always Google that and check. But I, I think that's. Uh, but if you possible. Google the name Marikana Massacre, you will find it. There was 30 plus mine workers killed who wanted who were striking for better wages, and the police was sent there to kill them. And they were working for uh, a British mining company, so that means that they're working for white capital, being exploited still, um, work earning for better wages or protesting, and then um, being shot at. And I think that's indeed a good example of racial capitalism still existing so my my final question is then um you cannot just abolish apartheid on paper and then not do reparations or seek out reparatory justice how can you undo the inequality the historical legacy and maybe can you speak on what kind of reparatory measures you think should have been taken which had not been taken and maybe also why they were not taken, because we also know reparations can be some very simple concepts like land back, like 70% of you know South African land is still in the owners of former settlers. And I know some leaders try to do these very simple measures, resources back, you know, reinvest that in the people. But sometimes government are not in the position or allowed to do this as well. So you can also speak on on two things one is the what should have been done in terms of repertory measures to you know cover for the harms done 
And the second, what was the mechanisms or measures from the West response when nations tried to implement these repertory mechanisms, some of which are maybe complicated, some of which might be simple, but what is then the response of Western states to these? Well, you seem to know a lot about the topic and I don't really go into reparations in the book. So maybe I should be asking you to share a little bit of your ideas on reparations and restorative justice and how you see perhaps reparations and restorative justice working today and success stories and failures. I mean, I think South Africa is a good example of failures around restorative justice and, and reparations because um, we, we made a crucial decision. We abandoned uh, reconstruction development programs for growth economic and redistribution, which is the neoliberal macroeconomic program. And the minute we did that, we created more, we created uh, a larger cheap black labor reserve that was fungible. So their racial capitalism worked very well in that uh, with the gear, with uh, the macroeconomic policies that South Africa started implementing for to attract more foreign direct investment, which is these extractive mining companies, um, you know, coming in and exploiting black labor in South Africa. Um, but but also, uh, you know, reparations, land back, you know, giving people the land back is great. I think it's fantastic. But when you're giving people the land back, you have to give people the land with the tools and the ways in which to live on the land. You can't just give the land back. And that's where I think the idea or the concepts around reparations need to be really thought about. What do we mean by giving the land back? You're not just giving, you know, huge swaths of land back, but rather actually thinking through the notion of giving the land back and making it uh, livable and creating the conditions for harmonious communities. Because as Sarah said in the tea chart, you know, the uh, Palestinian, uh, the Dutch Palestinian, she said that, you know, Palestinians just wanted to live in harmony with the refugees coming from Europe at the time. Um, and that's the story that her grandmother shares that, you know, prior to the Nakba, they were living in harmony, they were welcoming the refugees, and then the refugees threw them out. And so how do we create the kinds of harmonious, harmonious communities that we want to see thriving, um, you know, as we sit in this interregnum in this decolonial moment? Um, and I think that those are the questions that we should be asking ourselves around reparations because it is important. We all have to thrive. We all belong to the earth. We're all part of multiple species on the earth. And we have to also abandon our own narcissism of coloniality because we all produced within coloniality. So we all have some aspirational colonialism within us. And that's the uhuru, the undoing of that. And what does it mean to create harmonious, you know, thriving communities? And how do we go about doing that? Because that's what giving the land back means, ultimately. Yeah. Now, maybe to add a little with what you asked me, I mean, reparations is about, you know, undoing the harm done that the criminal act has caused. So if you had a house and a person destroyed the house, then you try to rebuild the house as before the act that you destroyed the house. So in that sense means that's a very material, you know, uh, um, aspect of it, but other aspects of it you know, slavery and the long centuries of colonization have taken sovereignty away from people, the way how to live with the land, the way 
you know, cultures, languages, joy, one of the things that you've mentioned. So you cannot, you know, invest in it in one way or, you know, what you said, literal, I give you land back and then, you know, it's done. That doesn't work, of course, in that way either. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I mean, if I look at the Israeli, what they've took also in Palestine, uh, like the water resources, I mean, if you look at the water, the West Bank, it's not a straight line. They make like sometimes like an extra corner like this, and then it goes another to the left and right. It's like a whole snaky thing because they geographically were mapping, oh, there's a water sea resource. So we'll take that as well. They first take the hills. They first take the fertile land then the the beautiful nature parks which you can sell touristic so, you know, so it's like the whole um and then if you just end up part that and then it's still yours and then the the native population becomes this second class economically impoverished living you know in camps that were not their homes they they have the right to return right so it's it's not like reparations is not simple you can take it as a one thing but if you don't think about it and you just leave them basically completely screwed and stripped of their stripped of their humanity and capability to get access to get education and so forth, while maintaining that system of that you know that the, the that the others occupy the majority of the land, you will see econ uh, economic inequality growing. And that's what we see globally as well. Most of the resources are on the African continent, but yet the African continent is impoverished, right? So that taking back the resources, that's the part. And some governments have these, one that, that it's not a new or radical idea, communism or socialism as well, that was in the in the center of one of their simple demands, but leaders got cooked and murdered. And I'm sure you can mention maybe from the African perspective, more names than I can, but you know, people like Thomas Samkara, but also someone maybe from the recent future that has been portrayed in a certain way uh, was also Gaddafi, he was a Pan-African that also supported a lot of liberation struggles as well. Um, and he tried to, you know, nationalize things. So you can say whatever you like about him, but uh, it's not that we're against dictators in the West. We just like don't like certain dictators um, because others we support, like, I don't know, the Saudi regime. So it's also the... Um, um, these are the, like... The, things that are very obvious, but don't get discussed. So um, also when it comes to slavery, the, the Netherlands likes to see it as a, you know, a past thing, a thing of the past. Um, and we, we're now apologizing for something long ago because it's an emotional thing for black people to hear. But we want, I mean, the reparations is where the part is because they're still second class because reparations didn't happen. Master and slavers got compensated for the loss in property, right? The opposite does happen. Um, South Africa paid for decades um, for the debt they had for the apartheid regime to Western banks, which then determined that they should have neoliberal policies. So they were not able to redetermine their economy either. And there's, yeah, so there's layers upon layers of continued neoliberal economic colonialism that are not undone. Um, and if we don't talk about reparations, then you get symbolic victories. Um, but people will remain second class for generations to come. So anyhow, that's my rant about reparations. But I want to open it to the audience, except if you want to respond one more time on, the, on this rant, then otherwise I'll open it for the others. I like your rants very much, Max. I heard them and I really enjoy them. So, And they make me, they challenge me and they inspire me. And I think through some of your rants. So these were some of the thoughts 
on your rant, latest rant, um, which I really like. I think that I want to make the connection to Juno Jones's work now because of the afterlives of slavery and colonialism, because Juno shows very clearly in his work how um, how slavery and the policies, because he does, he's the, he's the real scholar. Like, I mean, I have never seen anybody sit in archives like Juno does, but part of that work is actually looking at those policies, looking at the, the, the legality of owning uh, people, uh, the ways in which human life becomes property and the ways in which policies work around human life being property um, of other humans as well. And that, that kind of, those policies, you can actually trace them to today, modern day society, and how those afterlives permeate into second class citizenship. And then he shows the ways in which the, the colonies um, were second class citizens of the empire, of the metropole. Uh, metropole. And, and this is the ways in which blacks in Europe are, are part of the afterlives of slavery as second class citizens because of those policies and because of how they permeate our society today. So, so I think that that's also a very important link um, and for scholars who want to do more, you know, scholarship around decolonization, these are some of the connections that should be made um, because they, they, they kind of give us a frame, a, a lens within which to also understand our oppression and to be able to undo it, and then to be able to create the levels of solidarity that we need to disrupt the system from many different angles so that we can really create the space for something new, something filled with more love and our, you know, that pushes back against the kinds of fear and control and management that have existed. Um, but it's also kind of what your, your generation has been asking for is that when education becomes a public good and education as a public good means a decolonized curriculum, then it means that you're pushing back again, uh, back um, against the afterlives of slavery, against second class citizenship. That's, that's where for me, the potential that Rhodes Must Fall had was the ways in which it disrupted that, that kind of continuation of racial capitalism in post-apartheid South Africa. And, and I think that these, I think Juno Jones's work is really seminal to this kind of thinking through a lot of the, the ways in which policies are just permeated from those policies that existed in during uh, the times of slavery. Yes, thank you for that addition. And I think that's very important. And also another link, uh, you know, post-slavery second-class citizenship is still visible in Europe through passports or, you know, double checks with the whole toeslagschandaal uh, that we had in the Netherlands where people of color were extra checked by the tax offices to the post-South Africa, you know, experience and also in Palestine, what is going to be the experience after, you know, let's say um, Palestine is free from the river to the sea, then you'll still have a legacy of decades to come uh, for inequalities to be, you know, repaired for. Um, anyways, I want to look to the people who, are, uh, who have been passively listening to give them a chance to become active listeners, I guess, or uh, feel free to ask questions in the chat or unmute yourself if you like. Um, can uh, be a question about some of the contents, but it can also be a reaction if you like. Um, and 
if there's not any questions coming i have more questions i mean i can talk all evening otherwise i will have one final wrap-up question to ask well laura laura said uh, laura asked the question is um the book by anton de com um it is it has been translated into english actually a year ago so uh, the reason why Antoine de Combe is not more known is because the Dutch translation had not, the English translation had not happened until now, uh, until about a year ago. And I think that that's, that's important because I think the more we read about Antoine de Combe, I think we'll realize the importance of Antoine de Combe's work and how we can actually connect it to what's happening today as well. Thank you for sharing that as well. Then I'm going to ask my final question. And I mean, maybe it's not going to be the final question if someone decides to unmute or ask something in the chat if they come up with a question. Um, my final question would be, I mean, your, let's say, battlefield or arena, your position is inside the university. And what do you feel? Um, what is your call to action? Maybe as scholars, as students, people inside that, battlefield i'm gonna call it a battlefield anyway that's how i experience my university life you can use different words if you like these are my words um but what are calls to action that people should be doing to make that difference inside that setting so you know i i i i'm very critical of the neoliberal colonial institution but i do think that and i've said you know there are lots of barriers for black scholars to enter that uh, the, the institution itself the academy but but when scholars do enter they become black scholars in particular become they open the gates because because the colonial academy has gatekeep kept uh, there has been gatekeeping and we have been kept out and so what what a lot of black scholars have done entering the colonial academies opened those gates they flung them open and they've allowed for a lot more uh, discussion and uh, around pushing back and about undoing internalized oppression and you see this and you see a lot of white scholars who are allies disrupting white supremacy and you know i know my colleague in in sweden jesper bjarnison talks about with white supremacy all the time and how it's operating in terms of migration laws and things like that and that makes lots of connections to migration law um connected to white supremacy and the afterlives of slavery and uh, colonialism um and keeping people out and stuff like that um and and how myopic it is also for Fortress Europe to do that. So, so there are lots and lots of white scholars who are, you know, within decolonization, who are not talking about lived experiences of oppression, but actually were actually disrupting white supremacy, are actually doing really good work. And black scholars who come in, who are opening those gates, who are making opportunities available for other black scholars like myself, um, you know, I'm I'm in the academy because of black scholars as well, who have given me opportunities to, you know, be in the academy. So I'm very grateful for those kinds of things. But those kinds of things have to be ongoing. We have to see these conversations 
really opening up and really rethinking them and really getting into these conversations from very different angles as well. And I think that also multi-species, all of these things, new materialism, all of this has to be included because as we're disrupting the system from very different positionalities and from different way, in different ways, we have to create a space for what is to come. And as we're creating that space, which is what Hale Gorashi talks about, slow revolution and the in-between space, we need to give ourselves the time to think about what that future, what, what we want really. The, the questions of what we want need to become much more prevalent as well. What kind of world do we see ourselves living in? What does that world look like? What does it feel like? How does it sound? What kind of lingua franca do we have in that world? Are we creating languages and worldviews that are filled with love and connection and harmony? Uh, are we rethinking the ways in which technology is going to impact the future and what that means for human existence on the planet as well? All of these things need to be need to be kind of ruminated on, and we need to create the space to ruminate about these things too, because we know what the system is. I think we've a lot of us are at the point where we know exactly what our reality is. We know the game. We know the game well. We understand the game now. Now we need to start thinking through what what we really want as well, because as we're disrupting, we need to create the space for what we want. Thank you. I think these are beautiful last words. And I think maybe what we want or what we can imagine is not found in English, French, Dutch, Portuguese or Spanish, but maybe in languages that speak the language of Uhuru and Ubuntu. Um, and I mean, we talked a lot about Palestine, so we didn't get to talk about it. But the title is We Belong to the Earth. And I think a lot of these languages that we are we have dehumanized or invisibilized actually find it very normal to have a relationship with earth and the non-human as well. So I think uh, that collective imagination will not come from Europe. Um, so I'm just being honest. I don't think, um, I mean, our minister or not minister, but he worked for the European, he's now the party leader of the PVDA GroenLinks, like a Dutch left between brackets, right? I mean, they're pro-Israel, so left between brackets, but for the Dutch context, they consider him the left-wing coalition and the, Leader of that, Frans Timmermans, said, we are a culture of life and they are the culture of death. Uh, talking about, uh, you know, the, the other side, the Palestinian side, Hamas and stuff. But I found it so interesting that he said, we are the culture of life. Like he said, literally thinks that Europeans represent life. Well, for so many people, they have been representing in the literal sense centuries of death. Um, anyhow, I hope we can reimagine our imagination through other languages as well. So thank you for your work, Nadira. Uh, thank you for spending time with us. Um, as a few practical closings, um, this was another decolonial learning sessions from Adalas, a pan-decolonial network and organization based in the Netherlands. For more interviews and lectures, you can check out our YouTube channel and website uh, and blog where we share reading and watching tips as well after the session so you can deepen your knowledge everything is freely accessible on the internet uh, so we make knowledge a public good because knowledge is power donations are welcome so we can support our speakers sharing knowledge with us again and form that reciprocity so thank you all for listening and that was it